So this is racing for the hep C cure, bumps in the road. And uh, some of the questions will be aimed just at the panel. Some of them, you'll have a chance to respond and then we'll see what the panel thinks of that. You've already seen that. Okay. You ready, panel? Yeah. Okay. We have a 60-year-old African-American woman with long-standing hep C HIV co-infection. She was diagnosed with HIV in 92. Her partner died of AIDS. She has a history of past injection drug use, but has been clean for 20 years and on methadone maintenance. Uh, she has an apical lung mass with a stable aspergilloma. She has severe COPD, now oxygen dependent with an FEV 1.5, which is 21% of predicted. Um, and she has a history of having PEs. Um, she, her past ARVs include AZT and DVI exposure. She's on AZT, 3TC, and boosted lipinavir uh, in the past, but most recently was switched to raltegravir, uh, tenofovir, and tricitabine regimen. Uh, she quit smoking, she quit alcohol many years ago. She drinks four cups of coffee a day. Um, and uh, I told you her regimen for her HIV. She's also on calcium with vitamin D, albuterol, budesonide, uh, uh, ipratropium. She gets prednisone at least once yearly, some years more than that. She's on warfarin, prevastatin, metoprolol, and omeprazole. So I don't know what kind of patients you see, but this is the kind of patient I will see. Um, she was biopsied in 2007, and at that time she had minimal fibrosis, one uh, on a six. This is a different scale. It's an ISHAC scale, so uh, uh, still minimal. The one side is, is minimal. Uh, she had a fibrosure done, which was 0.41, and, and the interpretation is F1 to F2. And she had a transient elastography, which was no greater than F2, mild fibrosis, despite 20 years of infection. Panel, why hasn't she progressed? And why might she be at risk for progression even now? start, I guess. Okay. Um, so uh, for a start, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of patients just, like, like I mentioned during my talk, actually never progress to significant liver disease. So um, it looks like somewhere in the 30, 35% range of patients um, with chronic hep C will eventually progress um, to cirrhosis if they were allowed to be viremic until they were old, uh, 70s and 80s, you know, during their life. So I, I think it is, uh, a lot of patients are uh, just not going to progress that quickly, and this, this patient doesn't seem to have a lot of liver disease. Um, women seem to progress a little bit slower than men, and uh, again, we don't hear that this patient, even though she has bad lung disease, that she's uh, obese, um, she does, does not drink alcohol. We don't know if she drank alcohol heavily in the past. So those things are certainly um, risk factors. 
Um, and um, maybe it's her coffee. Tell us about that. I, I don't know. Um, she drinks four cups of coffee a day. Um, there have been several uh, studies published in the liver literature that um, over three cups a day of coffee are actually beneficial um, in patients with, uh, you know, particularly Hep C, um, in terms of them progressing to cirrhosis. So maybe it is her coffee. Um, so, uh, but the the one caveat that I would have is that there um, are a lot of data uh, from here in New York, um, from Baltimore that certainly there's more variability and fibrosis may progress at different rates in HIV, HCV co-infected patients. And so even though she has mild disease now, um, the, the fact that she's HIV positive uh, definitely heightens my concern anyway that in fact she, she could still um, hit a different slope of her fibrosis progression. Great. Yeah. Any other comments from our panel? I was just going to say it must be one of those things. So that's a one way of <laughs> saying what you said. Yeah, yeah I think her age, you know, as she gets older and then become the prednisone immunocompromised intermittently, potentially from prednisone, I would worry a little too that fibrosis could accelerate. So we see increased progression later decades of life. Okay, and the prednisone, how's that related? For sure, post-transplant. Yeah. Okay, so my, my panel so far is doing very well. Uh, these are data from Johns Hopkins uh, looking at patients with early stage disease who, because they were early stage, were uh, not treated for their hep C, uh, HCV, HIV co-infected, and then were biopsied a median time of 2.84 years, almost three years later. And amazingly, 28% progressed two or more stages of disease in that short period of time. So as Dr. Monto said, uh, there can be rapid progression. This patient clearly has HIV and has not done that, but uh, a super accelerated progression is observed in some patients. Now she's African American and uh, that actually, along with being a woman, works to her advantage uh, because for reasons we don't understand, African Americans have lower rates of fibrotic progression of liver disease. And uh, so that is somewhat protective in her. It's possible it's a mirror of the fact that um, when we treated African-American patients with interferon, their responses were lower. So it, it seems like those two things are related. Although, although we thought that was related primarily to differences in the, uh, um, the IL-28B, the, the lambda, interferon lambda genotype, which uh, clearly was associated with TT and uh, rates of response, but uh, this does not seem to be associated with that. And Dr. Monto mentioned the coffee, and sure enough, uh, in a number of cohorts, including in this ANRS cohort from France, uh, three or more coffees 
was associated with significantly reduced risk of liver-related mortality. So uh, go out and feel no guilt when you go to Starbucks each day. <laughs> but only if you have hepatitis C. Hmm? Only if you have hepatitis C. Uh, the largest studies have been done in hep C, but there is some, some other data, and I won't go into it, but there are actually, some of these were not hep C cohorts that are described here. So, uh, should we recommend coffee? Yeah, probably there's some reason to think that we should. Okay, so you also mentioned that she uh, is not drinking alcohol. Um, no one mentioned her ARV regimen, but uh, would you agree that this is a liver-friendly regimen? Her current one, her, her former. Not so much. Not so much, yeah. So what was unfriendly before? She had don't do it as part of <laughs> the DEI, right? Um, so... <laughs> I mean, we've seen some um, with DDI, also different types of liver disease, like nodular regenerative hypertension. DDI is bad for the liver. It's just bad. Yeah. Know, so non-serotic portal hypertension that can come on years after they last took their DDI and is often fatal has mm -hmm. been a real problem. Right, right. And that's a really difficult situation. Uh, as noted, we didn't talk about it, but those patients don't have cirrhosis, but they have a big spleen and they have the low platelets. And if you see that, you should assume that there is portal hypertension present until you prove otherwise. And if you do an EGD and you see varices, then you're not dealing with a, some sort of an ITP-like situation with the low platelets. You're probably dealing with a non-serotic portal hypertension. Or, or it still could be a cirrhotic. You need to figure out, is it or isn't it? in those patients, and uh, uh, sometimes that may require a liver biopsy. There is a characteristic finding called hepatic portal sclerosis that's seen on biopsy in those patients. And we've used uh, FibroScan also in, in those patients. Right, so a very a low FibroScan yeah, score. Yeah. Can they have a normal-ish FibroScan? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we covered the question of HIV, aging, the prednisone, and, and really related to the aging, but postmenopausal status also appears to be a factor. Okay, so here's where we're at. You offer her treatment, and she says, if the virus hasn't bothered me yet, why should I bother it? So, panel, what do you do? Well, we used to say that about HIV. And uh, given the, the state of therapy in the old days, maybe we were right at that time, but I think now that HIV therapy is so safe and effective, it doesn't make sense anymore. And we've also learned about all the things that the virus does independent of its effect on the immune system. There's a lot of parallels with hep C. Treatment is effective, it's safe, it's curative, and we know that HCV viremia has non-hepatic complications. And you know, this woman is pretty sick. Probably none of it's related to her hep C, but you often don't know till you till you treat. Um, some things get better. So, would you both treat this patient? I probably would. I mean, I think I I didn't get a great sense of her life expectancy from the COPD. I mean, it, if I thought that was very very limited, I'd you know, perhaps not, or at least talk to her about kind of what her goals were for that year. You know, did she really want to go through this treatment? But the um, 
I think a lot of times, similar to what he's saying, you may have some unexpected benefit, but also just in terms of limitations of medications for treating other diseases. I think once you take away some of the, you know, concerns about the liver by hopefully curing hep C, it keeps a wider range of medications open for their future. Um, you know, Alex, or hep C gene type is 1A, is that what I remember? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think uh, looking at her uh, HIV regimen of the TDF-FTC raltegravir, I'd be interested in what you guys would think. Would treating her hep C would you make? Would you need to make changes to her HIV regimen in terms of being concerned about the tenofovir? Particularly, I'd get her off the TDF and put her on TAF, but otherwise the regimen is is fine. I'll take yeah. it as easy. So, so that would be a part of the picture. They'd be probably minor changes to her um, HIV regimen. I would also add that at least where I live, it's really easy to get drug access for co-infected patients, regardless of fibrosis stage. So so there'd be no problem getting her covered. Okay. I think we would definitely lean toward treating her again. I think if she weren't interested in having another another pill to have to take, uh, you know, daily for for three months. Um, this well, she's would be already told you she doesn't want to be treated, so you're going to have to be make a strong case and convince her. Well, she's asking you why she should be treated. Why should I be treated? Yeah. Right. Okay. So. Do the guidelines offer us any advice on this? And uh, they say, treatment is recommended for all patients with chronic HCV except those with short life expectancies that cannot be remediated by treating HCV, by transplantation, or by other directed therapy. So that becomes uh, an issue. What's important to note, the panel has never seen these cases just like in the morning session. So they're doing pretty good in uh, figuring out where I was going with this. But here is the answer to, to Christy's question. Mm -hmm. This is the survival curves of someone with low FEV1, and this woman who is at 21 is below this line. So, uh, you know, her median survival is under three years. So uh, does that... Knowing that now, does that change your decision? You have a woman with hep C, HIV, and she's got early stage liver disease. She could have some extra hepatic process that we're not aware of, um, but she also has a fairly low survival from independently from her COPD. Yeah, it, it's kind of not it's not a really a medical question, it's a health economics question. Um, if I were in her shoes, I'd still want to be treated because I'd want to maximize my health given that I was, I had a lot of comorbidity and, and um, but uh, the question is, and, and as, a, as her physician, I'd want the same thing. It's more of about what can we as a society spend on people who have a low, uh, a short life expectancy. Each member, we would be treated or not. I think I, I agree, and I think it's a very individualized decision. I, you know, I, I get it a lot in the context of cancers more than I think COPD. Like I never know how long someone's going to live. You know, I don't feel like I have that 
Uh, so I really think they, you know, I help try to help give them information to help them decide. But I think if she really doesn't want it, I, it's not someone who I'm going to just keep hounding, right? But if, if um, it, I'll tell her the potential benefits, and I think some of those people do end up wanting to be treated. I think uh, most of the patients who I see currently um, coming in to be considered for hep C therapy are enthusiastic about treatment, uh, even if they have mild liver disease. And so I think uh, if she really doesn't want it, my tendency would not be to twist her arm given her yeah. degree of safety. I, I think it, it'd be nice, again, I, I work mostly in the VA where right now they're really encouraging us to treat anybody who's who's hep C viremic, they really feel like they have support for it now. So I'd like to think that in every system, she'd be able to be treated if she wanted to be, if, if we all make the decision. So hopefully it'd be nice to have cost, you yeah. know, out of the picture. I know it's not. But right. I have to say, you know, ha I've seen enough people, I'm sure we all have, who whose quality of life improves within a week of starting therapy. And I'm sure her quality of life is not great. And most of it's probably her COPD. But who knows right. whether she would also experience some improvement in quality of life that would improve uh, the remainder of her life, even with a poor prognosis. Well, I, I essentially saw this patient on Wednesday. Her FEV1 was 24%. Um, and we had this discussion. And she said, I don't want any more pills. And uh, so we decided not to treat. So. Okay, second case. This is a 56-year-old African-American man. His hep C antibody is positive. HCV RNA is 5.5 million international units, genotype 1A. A biopsy was done in 2005, and he was 3 of 6 on the ISHAC scale. So uh, at 3, you are... Uh, essentially periportal expansion with some uh, rare bridges. Uh, it's, it's as the number implies, mid-stage. Let's give Dr. Monto a hand. He has to catch a plane. Thank you. And then there were just two. <laughs> <laughs> Including one who is definitely not a hepatitis C expert. <laughs> hey, I was on the oh, HIV no. yeah, Doing, doing great. <laughs> He did receive peg interferon ribavirin in 2006 and had what was described as a partial response, and at that point the treatment was discontinued. Uh, he developed a rise in creatinine and was diagnosed with lamellonephritis, uh, and he received rituximab for that. Uh, he received peg interferon ribavirin telaprevir in 2011-12, uh, and he had anemia, um, and uh, he had a myocardial infarction on that treatment, uh, presumably associated with the severe anemia, and uh, so therapy was stopped, and he relapsed. Um, he developed progressive proteinuria, renal failure, and is in the process of transitioning to dialysis his uh, shunt was just placed, and his, a his access, and uh, he's referred back to our clinic. Don't you have any difficult cases? <laughs> <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> so, 
he has protease mutations, Q80, but no R155, NS5A, he has a Y93H. Which regimen do you select for this patient? And this one's gonna go first to the audience. So you can see the choices. I'll hold it up for another couple of seconds and So we have a mix of things here, um, quite interesting, um, and uh, I'm going to turn this over to the panel to see what they think. Let's start with Dr. Galantz. Well, I'm way out of my depth here, but um, <laughs> you know, the first thing I would say is that of the, the drugs on the list, the one that I think you can use in people with kidney failure is the uh, Elbisvir and Rosoprevir. So that, I think that rules out the other ones. Now with the 93H, um, every time I go to my expert colleagues uh, with people who have transmitted or acquired 93Hs, they kind of say, wait, new drugs are coming that will be better. But of the regimens I see on that list, I would think number four would be the closest to what might work for that mutation and that you could use in, in renal failure. The question is just whether you need to treat now or whether you could wait. Well, he was a very good test taker because his logic was, was very good. <laughs> but I'm going to have but to disagree. Well, so there's, there's a couple things here. So if you're going to go by, I would actually, if I was going to treat him, do the same thing. But the guidelines actually say to do something else. And then the, the, the probably I think the point you're trying to get at is this may also be the time to consider him for kidney transplant because if you have hep C, it's actually easier to get a kidney than if you don't have hep C. There's a shorter time on the wait list. And because, you know, there's a significant mortality to being on dialysis that it may actually be in the person's best benefit to get the kidney transplant and then treat the hep C. So that's, um, is that where you're going with this? You okay. are right on. <laughs> I know him pretty well. <laughs> the, uh, no, but that is what I do. Now, most people are interested in getting a kidney transplant. There are some who just are not interested, and I don't know if they're otherwise eligible, but I think you know, because a lot of people come to your kind of, come to my office like, I want hep C treatment today, I've been waiting, I've been waiting, I know there's something now, and I'm so excited to have something to give a, a, an end-stage renal disease patient as well. I'm, you know, that I'm kind of can't wait to write the prescription. But I do say, let's just take, you know, a little pause. Have you met with a transplant doctor? Have you, you know, is that something you would consider getting a kidney transplant? Because you could probably, you know, get a kidney transplant potentially, um, this year, you know, and uh, if that's something that you want to do. And so um, I've had patients who've wanted to do both ways. Some people want their hep C treated more than they want to be off dialysis. This person's never been on so dialysis. So what would you do if he said no transplant? So no transplant, the guidelines actually say, and this is based on the, um, the Grisepravir Elvisvir study in patients who had either, you know, decreased renal function or were on hemodialysis. Um, that studied Elbisvir-Grisepravir for 12 weeks. It was a very high cure rate and it was very safe. It works very well. 
And the rats, for whatever reason, didn't seem to make as big of a difference mm. as they make in people who don't have renal disease. Maybe it's a drug level thing, maybe it's not. So the guidelines actually say not, you know, they recommend just the 12 weeks without the ribavirin. Personally, I actually do something different. I look which RAV they have, and Y93H is kind of one of the worst ones, and I don't know, I would be, you know, that when you break down that C-surfer data of the failures, you know, they may have been, it, it's hard, to, I think it's hard to know. It's not like there were so many people studied that you conclusively know, but the, you know, experts believe it's not necessary. I personally, if I saw that mutation, if I thought I could dose ribavirin in a safe way, would, would do it. But you definitely have to give ribavirin at a uh, lower dose and monitor, monitor ri um, anemia and side effects very carefully if you're gonna use it. But, so. but if I'm the patient, I'm gonna say to you, but the last time I got that, they said I had a heart attack. Oh, right, I forgot about the patient's <laughs> heart attack. Okay, I would just do number three. You've convinced me. And that's probably what would happen. The patient would say that, and then I would feel like an idiot. And I'd say, you're right. We won't use it. I just wasted 20 minutes of your time talking about why I want to use ribavirin, and we're not going to use it. Heart attack, smart attack. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So, so I'd so, be fine with three. So, yeah. I, three mean, or I, five. I think that uh, because of the better response rates, I... I would probably push to give him the, the albuspiral drosophosphere for 16 weeks without the ribavirin, which isn't one of the choices here. Um, and sometimes you have to convince the insurance company and then tell the patient throw out the ribavirin and uh, you manage it that way too. because they decided that that was the, the guideline regimen in that patient. But number one, we should say lidipospirus drosophosphere is not clear how to dose it in dialysis. There is some data out there or in you know that kind of degree of, but the sofosbuvir uh, metabolite accumulates to very high levels, so the safety is uncertain, I would say. And then the prod regimen has also been studied in renal disease. It's a little harder to use with the ribavirin and hasn't been studied in as many people as the albuspirosophosphere. And he, I think her, I forgot her ARVs, but yeah. Dracala. Right. Oh, there Oops. were no ARVs? This patient. Oh, okay, no way There was not. Another problem that the devil already had. But drug interactions tend to be more of a problem with prod. Okay, so here is the data. Uh, here are the data from the C Surfer trial looking at uh, albuspheric esophagir. And uh, you can see incredibly high SBR12 rates in patients with renal disease, including those pre and on dialysis. And the guidelines that I think Christy adequately covered and mentioned. This is the real issue, to transplant or not transplant this patient. So there is a 4% per year mortality on dialysis. This patient has not yet started on dialysis. There's 100,000 people awaiting renal transplantation and patients that have uh, hep C and uh, hep C will often get an otherwise discarded kidney within months rather than waiting as long as five years for a kidney. Um, 
So this is the flip side of what you heard from Dr. Brooks this morning. In, in again, in my part of the country, which is smack in the middle of that, that area he showed as a problem, we have a tremendous number of deaths from, uh, from the use of heroin in young people, heroin with fentanyl or carfentanyl. Carfentanyl is a uh, animal tranquilizer and it's being mixed with, uh, with the uh, heroin and it puts patients into massive respiratory uh, depression and uh, some of them, I mean, use up an ambulance's supply of, uh, of naloxone trying to reverse it. And uh, so we're seeing a lot of deaths in those patients. Those are prime young organs and many of them already have hep C. And so they're being rejected by the hep C negative patients. They don't want, there's, there, you're not allowed to do that at this time. Though there is a study going on to look at that now uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, so our renal transplant surgeons would tell us do not treat anyone and make them HCV negative if they have renal disease. Can I ask you a related question? And we, this comes up all the time with people with decompensated cirrhosis who are going to probably need a transplant. Should we be treating them or keeping them, you know, both with a higher that, that, MEL score that is and a with more organs? Fantastic question. I'd like to have Dr. Marks respond first because the answers are actually almost center dependent. Yeah. I personally don't see that many of my patients uh, go make it to the transplant stage. So I'm very reluctant not to treat them. I think if I can improve their chances, you know, improve their liver disease, I'm probably going to benefit their quality of life. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the transplant hepatologists may disagree with me. They uh, so I think if you have a really good candidate for transplant, which often I would just say my patients are almost immediately ineligible for some reason or another, and if they're, if they're eligible and they're pretty sick, you, by treating their hepatitis C, you sometimes reduce their urgency for liver transplant, and then they go down the list, and then they, you know, are, are stuck not feeling very well, and, but not sick enough for a transplant, and that's what the transplant Right, so that's that's exactly right. We call that meld hell. Yeah, um, purgatory, right? Yeah, or meld purgatory. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, people in Midwest don't use the word purgatory, no. just hell. <laughs> and uh, so, so it's a huge problem. We we do tend to treat those patients because we are able to transplant, do liver transplants. Uh, often at between 25, MELD score of 25 and 30. Um, in New York, on the coasts, both coasts, uh, it's not uncommon for patients to have to get to MELDs of near 40 before liver becomes available to them. And so it's different. And uh, um, so we're able to treat patients, cure them, go into transplant virus negative, it makes some things much simpler post-transplant. Uh, one of the biggest issues post-transplant when you see a bump in liver enzymes is, is does this patient have recurrent hep C 
or is this a rejection event and we have to biopsy the patients to separate that out and the pathologists are squishy and often say, oh, I don't know, it could be one or the other and uh, we end up dealing with both the hep C and giving them increased immunosuppressives which lead to more complications. So if we can get rid of the hep C, that's a really good thing. If you're on the coast and some people can get an organ sooner, then that is certainly worth it and uh, so it becomes a center-dependent issue. Uh, I just wanted to make sure you know about the HOPE Act. Uh, the HOPE Act allows organs, which used to be illegal, from HIV-positive donors to be used in HIV-positive recipients. It was signed in 2013. Um, it also shortens the wait times. Uh, what you also need to know, though, is that the number of centers doing HIV transplants in the U.S. has dropped significantly in recent years, and uh, uh, so only a handful of centers do it. We're, we're the only ones between us and, like, Chicago that do it, and, uh, and going south, you've got to go all the way to, I think Emory is doing them in Atlanta. Columbia. And Columbia does it here. So. Sinai is here, sorry. Right. Sinai is doing it. So, you know, I don't think you have so much of an issue here in New York, but around across the country, it actually is a big issue because getting patients to a transplant center that, that will even evaluate the patient is a problem. And people call their closest transplant center, and if it's an HIV positive patient, they just say, oh, there's nothing we can do. And if, if the, if the, HIV provider doesn't pursue it, no one will. Okay, so HIV is associated with kidney disease. Uh, patients get high van and immune complex mediated glomerular nephritis. And if they have hep C, there's a hep C associated membrane or proliferative, often with cryoglobulinemia. And then there are other reasons why patients also get kidney disease. So, this is a question for the audience. Knowing what you know about cure rates for HCV, if you were on a dialysis now, if you were on dialysis, would you accept a transplant from an HCV positive donor? Go ahead and vote. Seventy-three percent said yes. A few of you say you're going to wait. What would our panel do? Oh, I'd, I'd take the, the organ, you know, a bird in the hand. Um, I'd much rather have a, a real, a real kidney and take a few uh, months of therapy than, you know, and it wouldn't depend on genotype these days because genotype three is not so scary as it used to be. Dr. Marks, I agree. Sure I, I, I agree as well, though the threes still make me a little nervous, <laughs> but you're not going to get a genotype. There's no way on earth to do that in the time needed for the processing, and so you're going to take your chances knowing that the genotype threes in the midst of this new heroin epidemic is, are a little more prevalent than uh, the genotype ones uh, compared to 20 years ago. 
but even with that, I, I think the answer would be yes, just do it. And uh, so this patient um, waited, he went on the list, he waited five weeks, he got a transplant, he had a rapid steroid wean per the HCV protocol, he was put on, on tocolimus, MMF, his creatinine is now 0.8. His current medications are shown. His liver fibrosis has been restaged uh, one and a half years ago. It was now four out of six. So, oh wait, that's not a question. <laughs> oh, what I didn't get any music with my questions, and you get music for yeah, non-questions. That's weird. <laughs> okay. Well, it was supposed to be what information will inform your, your treatment choice uh, at this point. Is there anything else you want to know from the panel? Okay. Yeah. We definitely want to get him uh, on the tab. Okay. Because uh, of his... Well, for lots of reasons. Well, here's your choices. Okay. Okay, let's, let's ask the audience first. Sorry. These, these are your choices at this point. Okay. We have, again, a mix of agents to use. So, what so this would is our the one A with the Y ninety three H. Yeah. Right? Okay. Oh, it's the same guy. Okay. Same guy. I'm getting. Oh. I'm trying to remember <laughs> back. Okay. Right. We so didn't treat him before. We didn't so treat now, him before. now he's post transplant. Right. So he was on some meds. He's on some meds. <laughs> That's I correct. I can't remember all of them at this point. He's on Tacro and MMF. Okay. And so you, you don't want things that are going to interfere with those. You just spent a lot of money on a kidney transplant. <laughs> so um, the ones I know of that, and I will say, this is where I really have to get the help of a PharmD or that website, or you know, I, I probably email three people about cases like these just to make sure. But um, the lidipospheres sofosavir, I believe, doesn't interact with the transplant drug. He was on some omeprazole, so I'm a little bit, you know, omeprazole, when you're on a PPI, it can lower the levels of the lidiposphere, or if we decided to use sofosphere or valpatosphere, it could lower that as well. So I, I don't know how necessary that is post-transplant. I'd talk to them. Could, is there some reason that needs to be on? If you have to use it, you know, you want to just um, dose it at the appropriate time in relationship to the meds, but I'd rather just people not be on it at all. I think there's been, you know, there's some, some data that um, perhaps being on a PPI is associated with had sort of a dose response effect. You had to be on a higher dose of the PPI. That's, you know, was a low dose. But if I think just none is better, you want to optimize this particular In light of the 93H, what on that list would you be the most comfortable with? So the good news um, is for sofosphere lidiposphere, sofosphere valpatosphere, who's a genotype 1, the Y93H um, in a treatment-naive person. But he's treatment-experienced. He had tilaprevir. He got that. What did he have? Tilaprevir. He had tilaprevir. No, so the tilaprevir <laughs> caused the Q80K, or may have, well, probably not, but 
telaprevir won't, because it's a protease inhibitor, won't cause the MS5A resistance. And don't so forget, he's also ha is on an HIV regimen. We did not change it. Right. So he's right. still on raltegravir <coughs> uh -huh. with uh, enoprevir and facitamine. So that's so, also so okay with the cefosbuvir, lidocosteroid cefosbuvir atemosphere. I mean, you know, okay. the, you know, again, the tenofovir levels may increase, so you may want to get them on TAF, but um, especially, you know, give them the renal transplant. But in general, that doesn't require a switch necessarily right there. The, um, the so the Y93H though for, is, is really, the RAVs, again, for initial treatment are really for genotype 1A for the, Albasvir to Zephyrvir, and you don't have to change for the other. When you accumulate RAVs because of treatment, because you've got an NS5A in the past, that's a very different situation, and we didn't really get into that. So, so that's my question. HIV providers don't understand. For <laughs> us, a transmitted mutation is just as important as an acquired mutation, but for you it's not. So why is that virologically? Why, would, why does it matter how you got the mutation? Some people say, you know, it may be the... Um, I, I'm not sure it does. The percentage, well, it does in terms Guidelines of. Guidelines say it does. It does, in, I mean, it does in terms of the studies. I mean, of it. I mean, it probably is related to the level of enrichment of that, mm -hmm. and and you know, we didn't go into it. But how did you do the testing? Because there's currently two commercial tests available, and one of them is detecting essentially population sequencing down to a level of about 25 or 30 percent of the population, and the other one is is using deep sequencing, but it's cutting off at 10 percent, even though it can detect lower, they're reporting at 10 percent or more, and so it depends how enriched it is in the population and how you detected it. And you say that doesn't make sense for HIV, but it was the same thing with when integrase inhibitors, you can find some of those mutations if you do deep sequencing, that seemed to matter there. I, uh, yeah, I suppose if you if you did it with deep, deep sequencing, sequencing. Yeah. it's probably you can get a little higher percentage. Yeah. But if we find it on a standard genotype, we treat a mutation the same whether right. it was transmitted or, yeah. or acquired. So that doesn't seem as necessary with some regimens. Okay. With some regimens, it is. So it's a little bit, you know. I think ideally, you know, it makes sense not to use a drug that has some sure. resistance. So you, because he's never been an NS5A inhibitor, you're treating that as a transmitted mutation, even though he's treated. The, um, I think once there's triple therapies available, you know, those will be more ideal with someone with these baseline resistance mutations. Um, you'll just have more drug interactions with those. So, but with what we have, we know it affects certain regimens more than others. So he applied for 24 weeks of sofladip, and his insurance only approved 12 weeks because he's not cirrhotic. to decide, don't they? <laughs> Which leads us to that. First, we're going to run some tests to see how your insurance reacts. Okay. So, the chances, we don't know the answer on this one yet. Okay, last case, 32-year-old uh, man who has sex with men who has a history of HIV for eight years. 
He's on FTC, Tanakhavir, Alvategravir. Kobe transitioned from FTC, Tanakhavir, Efavirans due to depressive symptoms. Uh, you see how everything you learned this morning sort of circles back? Um, he never really got very low in his CD4. Uh, his risks, intermittent injection, crystal meth, uh, and unprotected sex. He was diagnosed with syphilis. Uh, his ALT was 39, and he was HCV antibody negative. anything if you saw him at that point? Definitely would counsel him about the risk of hep C. You know, I mean, I think um, people, uh, particularly we, as we talked about MSM uh, patients with HIV, seem to be at increased risk of sexual transmission. Now, there have been in even HIV uninfected PrEP cohorts, hep cases, you know, uh, Hep C has been seen, like in that Kaiser study, they were saying there were some Hep C acquisitions that were believed to be sexual. So it can happen in MSM who aren't HIV positive, but there seems to be an increased susceptibility. I think it has to do with you know the immune system in the um, sort of anal rectal area, and then also maybe with serosorting that people are just having sex more frequently with people who happen to have Hep C because they're choosing other HIV positive partners. I think it's a com combined effect. But I do counsel people. I really don't don't believe that a lot of HIV MSM who don't he's he's using injection drugs, so he's using high risk because of that. But people, even those who aren't using injection drugs, don't think they're at risk for Hep C. It's just not the word hasn't gotten out on that yet. Yeah, I agree. I, there's nothing I would do right now, but this is definitely a guy who needs to have his Hep C antibody checked frequently, at least once a year, according to guidelines, um, not just at baseline. Who thinks his ALT is normal? That's a good question. <laughs> 30 in men and 19 in women, right? Right. So, so regardless of what your lab tells you, an ALT of 39 is not normal, 30 is normal for a man or less, 19 for a woman, above that, you probably have some liver disease present. Unless you want to work on the, the drug treatment. So that leads into uh, what Dr. Gallant was mentioning. He said he would surveil yearly in this patient. Uh, do you do ongoing surveillance for hep C, hep B, or hep B antibodies? Which goes to some of this giant stack of questions. for hep C for sure. Hep B, I mean, he probably is protected if he's been, they think he was immune, right? And then also that having the tenofovir on board is an added protection that's been shown. So you want to surveil him at once a year, you agree with Joel? For hep C, you mean? Yeah. Even though he's actively using. Well, the guidelines would say minimum of yearly, but you might choose to do it more often, just like we often test for other sexually transmitted diseases more often than people. So how are you going to decide? What, what would prompt you to do more than yearly? 
ongoing, um, ongoing injection drug use and high-risk sex with methamphetamine. Okay. Well, he's, always, he's doing that. He so, told yeah, us. every time I see him. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're sort of in this perfect storm for, uh, for risk of hep C, and you heard a lot about that this morning from uh, Dr. Brooks. Um, how well do we screen? So this is a study that uh, looked at seven U.S. HIV clinics, and uh, there was there was tremendous variation. But basically, you know, overall, only half were ever screened again, um, regardless of the uh, risk factors and uh, the site of care, meaning what was the practice in that site was much more predictive than whether the patient reported ongoing risk factors or not. So we don't do that well. Okay, so our patient, uh, this is actually what his ALTs looked like. He went from 22 to 37 to 193 to 940 to 850 to 1210 to 540 and his HCV RNA uh, did go up during that time. So his, your diagnosis is? Hep C. Okay, his genotype 1A and his IL-28B is CC. Do you get IL-28B genotypes routinely in patients with acute Hep C? I don't anymore because now I feel like even if they, you know, the, the, the early intervention on a sort of cure, you know, about curing them isn't as important. Um, so I give them a little time to spontaneously resolve if I think, you know, they're hopefully not going to be transmitting it in the meantime. Um, so IL-28CC has a higher chance of spontaneous resolution. but. Um, some people would argue if they weren't CT, you could just CC, you could just treat immediately. I think that was more important in the interferon era because that's when you really wanted to kind of, you know, get any advantage you could. Now we can cure them at any time. So. But he's beyond the six month, I assume that. No, um, no, no. Established no. chronic infection. No, this is over just a period of weeks. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he may, he may, yeah. So I think you. So do we treat now? I'd like to see what the audience thinks. I think this is a response question, and there's the summary of him. He's had the diagnosis of acute hep C now for about eight weeks. About a third saying no, and two-thirds are ready to treat. So you've primed them for treatment. Dr. Marks? Yeah, I understand why people... Is that what you would do? I understand why people want to treat right away. They want to prevent spread. I think it, it's another one of those decisions that I think has to be individualized. I mean, the guidelines say to allow for spontaneous resolution up to six months unless there's a reason to treat early, and this would be a reason spreading it to other people would be considered a a reasonable reason to treat early. The, um, 
However, you know, there's also the risk of him getting reinfected. So I try to kind of optimize his own best chance of a, like a long-term cure. And, you know, I think he's got things to work on in terms of the substance abuse. Often getting diagnosed with hep C is a wake-up call from the crystal meth. I just don't think people realize they're at risk for hep C and, and maybe he'll be more amenable to drug treatment. So I try to pursue several things at once. I don't say I'm not going to treat your hep C because I think that's a huge turnoff to the patient that they, you know, then just don't want to engage with you, you know, because they came seeking treatment. But um, I would worry about you know, there's still a chance you may spontaneously clear, which would be wonderful, but getting less likely as time goes on. And then the, uh, you know, there's a high ch chance, I showed you that 30% in three years of reinfection in people like this. And it's, um, so I think you want to try to intervene to reduce that risk. So I treat people early. We've had a lot of studies of acute hep C. It works very well early, but, and I, but I just think you have to, you know, practice? Are you going to treat this person? Well, I th the main, re the perhaps the only reason to treat him would be public health and prevention of transmission from his own standpoint. If, if that weren't an issue and it were off the table, we would normally wait to see if he cleared. So, you know, normally we're not supposed to treat people, individuals, only for public health reasons. It has to be a benefit to them. I would talk to him about that and, and try to assess his interest in being treated and also the likelihood that he's going to be engaging in high-risk activity during that time period. Right, so that goes to the question, how worried are you about risk of reinfection? Yeah, I'm very worried, yeah. but I, I mean, to really get a handle on the hep C epidemic, you're gonna, some people are gonna get reinfected, you know? So if we really wanna make progress on, treating only low-risk people isn't gonna do anything to ending hep C epidemic. You have to treat the high-risk people. <laughs> so where so. is your line? I'm going to push you on this. Yeah. Where is some? Well, I, I mean, whether we <laughs> whether we treat him now or treat him later, there's the he's still got a risk of reinfection. Um, that's not going to go away yeah. unless his lifestyle. Unless changes. you get him into a drug treatment program yeah. and get him to to stop using, or at least get him to uh, clear uh, frequent or generalized use of needle exchange. So. So there may be some reasons to wait, but, but what's some? I'm going to come back to that. Yeah. How much is acceptable? I mean, we have an ongoing study treating people at a syringe exchange program. So these are active injection drug users where we're, you know, it's part of a study, granted. But I think there's benefits to, like I said, I wouldn't just say come back when you're sober because that is, I think, the wrong message. And then people just, you know, back essentially so I, it's it's more you know working at the same time is how I try to work through it and at some point either way I will initiate the hep C treatment it's, um, right I mean this this is though clearly a line between the cost of the drugs and the rate of reinfection and someplace you know the movement of one whoops, shifts the other one but uh, we don't have a societal answer on that at this point. And it really is a societal question, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not really a medical question. It's more about how many times can we treat somebody for reinfection. One thing I will say about insurance is they often can't tell if the treatment didn't work or if the person was reinfected. So I have treated people a second time who've gotten reinfected. I mean, I, my concern was I just wouldn't be able to get them another round of medication. But it's, 
a bit hard to prove it was, you know, usually it'll be a, a genotype one again. And, and, and if we go back to 15 years ago with ACOs, you're going to get a letter at some point that says that the marks, your salary this year will decrease by $15,000 because you treated too many patients with hep C. I'm an infectious disease doctor. My salary can't go any lower. Oh, I <laughs> bet it can. <laughs> it's rock bottom. That would put us oh, in the negative range. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd be okay. paying them to come away. So audience, what are we going to treat this patient with if we decide we're treating? Here are your choices. Go ahead and vote. Thirteen percent want to change ARVs, and they're pretty much spread across almost all of the choices. So, uh, Anna. Well, I, I would definitely change his ARVs no matter what. Um, uh, mainly, getting him on TAF as opposed to TDF, and then I guess my question to you. So, so, so wait, if uh, you're going to change him now, that means you are not going to treat now. You're going to delay therapy for some no, period of time? No, I think you do it at the same time. I same mean, you day. Could, you could, because, you know, okay. switching from TDF to TAF is hardly even a switch. You know, it's just a, okay. it's, it's a tweak. Okay, that's fair. Uh, so um, I guess um, my question to you then um, is soft ledipasvir for eight weeks would be considered fine given his current viral load, but do you have to consider prior viral load? Would you only consider today's viral load? Now this comes up more in chronic patients who are 4,000, but a few months ago they were 10,000. I mean million, sorry. Yeah, um, thinking in HIV terms. Um, so d how does that affect your decision about, oh wait, he's, he's co-infected, so we're not gonna use AZ. Yeah, okay. but I mean, thinking through your thought, I would use, I use the highest viral Okay. Who knows what they're you're right, yeah. who they're going to be today, especially with acute, they're bouncing all around. Um, so I think you would try to. So the, I mean, I think eight, you know, sofosbuvir for, for eight weeks was what was just studied in the ACTG study. We haven't seen the results yet, so we'll see that soon, hopefully, as sort of a pilot study of can you treat lower. But you're right in that when they tried it for six weeks, viral load, the ones who failed had the higher viral load. So this person certainly has higher-ish viral loads and did in the past. I'd be worried about use one of the 12 week regimens. And I think, you know, they're really, I think probably pe people's choices depended on what they have access to <laughs> and their experience. So I think any of them would theoretically be fine. Um, the, with the COBE, you worry a bit about that whole, it's a boost, you know, essentially boosting, are you boosting the sofavir levels and the issue with lodiposphere? Um, so it would be ideal to switch to TAF. Um, he's a healthy young guy, you probably could tolerate it. You could monitor as well switch to TAF and then use one of those 12 week regimens. Okay. So the guidelines that uh, that you helped write said that uh, yeah. you should follow this patient for six months. If you read it, you don't read on, it says, if the decision has been made to treat <laughs> earlier. <laughs> if the decision has been made, then you should monitor for at least 12 weeks. Now he's only eight weeks. 
for the 12? I, I us or, personally or usually do. I think it's, an, it's individualized again. I hate to keep just saying that. I usually wait 12 weeks and allow. It, it takes a while to get the meds. I mean, See what I say it comes in at eight weeks and you order it now. Yeah, you're not getting okay. it to week 12. You're going to wait no matter what. You're, you're, <laughs> you're rationalizing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what about this? Six weeks of treatment. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to. It worked pretty well, but not for the high viral loads. So I think at some point, if we get enough experience, we probably can give some people shorter therapies. Yeah, so here was the relationship to the viral load and the likelihood of, of response. So clearly a relationship to viral load, but uh, might be able to get away certainly with six weeks. So each of those bars is a patient, just so people know. So there was one patient who was a reinfection as well, and that's just in a very short period of follow-up. Pretty good, 85% SVR rate for six weeks of therapy overall. Mm -hmm. The good news when you shorten therapy, you're less, if you relapse, you're less likely to generate resistance than if you, if you relapse after a full length of treatment. This isn't zero, it's just less. So I like to give a regimen I know is gonna work until I really know how I'm gonna deal with the people it doesn't work on. And I think we're getting close to having that perfect regimen for NS, people who acquire NS5A resistance, but I don't feel we're there yet. I think once we have the triple therapies, we probably will be, and then I'll have, then I would probably be more open to some of these shorter regimens, knowing we have a backup plan. But when I don't have a backup plan, I wanna give the best therapy. <laughs> so here are some of the data on reinfection. This is a, a paper that's about to come out, and uh, 7.3 per 100 person years, about, I mean, it's, it's over 20% of three years reinfection rate, which goes to that question of where is the line in making a decision, and resources, I think that, that we do have. It's, you know, it's really hard because if you treat him now and he goes for a period of time with no hep C, who knows how many infections you're preventing as a result. So then he gets reinfected, that's one more infection, but you may have prevented six. So I, I don't know how to do that kind of math. Right, um, right. So, so modeling data has been done to look at that. Uh, notably uh, the work from Tasha Martin and colleagues, and uh, in a stable epidemic process like uh, what we see going on in, uh, in a relatively close population in Vancouver or London, um, there's, uh, it, it reduces risk significantly. Treatment is prevention. The question is whether recent epidemic issues uh -oh. can, uh-oh, look. <laughs> Who's here? He's saying we're about done. I think you're overdone. No, no. <laughs> got three minutes. You're three minutes in the negative. Oh, okay. okay. And I want to keep our loving, long-term, non-progressing audience <laughs> then, respectful of their time. Then we are going to stop there. Uh, we do want you to complete your evaluations and.
It's uh, very important to us. Uh, we do take your, your uh, responses very seriously and try to modify these meetings What are the issues and things we should be covering, shouldn't be covering, how we should do things. So uh, please We, we wanted to feature one to thing that, that you might consider. We combined the courses for HIV and Hep C used to be on different days. We combined everything today into one day. So if you could let us know if you like that in your comments, if that was better, um, let us know that that would be helpful. Yeah. Great, so thanks for coming Thank you. today. Thank, thanks to our panel, all our speakers.